0: Hey there and welcome to the Oscar's Death Race Podcast, where we try to watch all of the Oscar-nominated movies or die trying. My name is Paulo and I'm your host. Hope everyone's death faces are going well out there. This past week we just saw the release of Nomadland on Hulu. Uh, I also caught, as you'll hear later in this episode's conversation, a virtual screening of The Father, which is also in contention for Best Picture. Uh, that should be coming to theaters if they're open near you later this Friday on the 26th. Uh, same for the United States versus Billy Holiday coming out on Hulu, um, which while perhaps not a Best Picture contender, may sneak into a couple of other categories. Uh, plus, we also just got news that New York York City's theaters will be reopened at 25% capacity starting next Friday the 5th. Um, I likely won't be going until I get my vaccine, don't worry mom and dad, but uh, nice to know that they're still on their way back. Now, before we get into this episode proper, a bit of housekeeping. Uh, If you follow my other movie podcast, Box Office Watch, uh, you'll know that we just hit our one-year and 50th episode anniversary of doing weekly shows. Uh, Technically, Oscars Death Race podcast was my first podcast I really worked on regularly, uh, even if it's off for 10 months of the year, uh, but I still wanted to call out that accomplishment. Uh, I actually promised myself if I were to consistently make podcasts for a year straight, and I still wanted to continue doing it after that, I'd find a way to at least make a little bit of money to defray the cost of a- of hosting and such, uh, with the dream of maybe one day making this a full-time gig. Uh, to that end, I've actually started a Patreon to support all of the shows that I work on on the Ninja Boy Media Label, uh, from this one, to Box Office Watch, to my anime podcast, yet another anime podcast, as well as other more ambitious shows I have in the works. Uh, of course, this show will always be free to listen to no matter where no matter if you're a patron or not, and you can get it wherever you have been already. Um, you know. So no need to worry about going up behind the paywall. I'm still figuring out what my perks will be for my patrons, uh, but if you do like what I do here, and even if you only want to support me for the two or three months that I'm doing Oscars Death Race, uh, you can cancel your patronage at any time. Um, again, whether or not you've been a loyal supporter since season one, or if this is your first time joining me, I truly appreciate support no matter what form it takes. Alright, enough of that. For this week's episode, I am joined by Slight Astronomer, a moderator of the Oscars Death Race subreddit and the Discord, who manages a community site linked to a Google seat he developed to help others track their own death races. He's contributed a ton to the community, and I was glad to have the chance to get to know the man behind the Excel seats. Uh, if you're not already in the subreddit or Discord, you're missing out, and doubly so if you're not using his seats. Uh, all of those will, of course, be linked in the show notes. Uh, in our chat, we get into it his history uh, and reasons for doing the death rates, which I found surprisingly touching, um, as well as his thoughts on how the shift to streaming first uh, releases of films this past year due to the pandemic will affect the death rates uh, as well as Netflix's chances to win Best Picture. The films we do discuss in detail here are Trial of the Chicago 7, Mank, and Promising Young Woman, all films that found a lot of success on streaming, uh, specifically Netflix for the fir- first two. Uh, note that we do go into spoilers for these films, so Be sure if you want to avoid spoilers, to uh, make sure you've watched those films first, and otherwise you can pause this episode and come back later on in your death rates once you have watched them. All right, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Slight Astronomer. Let's all go to the lobby.
1: Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.
0: So... If you've been part of the Oscars Death Race online community on Reddit or on Discord, you may know who Slight Astronomer is, uh, perhaps if not exactly by name. Uh, he's the moderator of, or a moderator of the Oscars Death Race subreddit and Discord, as well as the sister subreddits Movie Death Races and Death Race Tracking. The latter isn't quite as popular as on Reddit as you know, something people regularly go to, but longtime listeners of the show will know of the community site OscarsDeathRace.net netlify.app that allows death racers to link to a Google sheet to the site to see how your race is going compared to every other's. We can try to see who actually beats the death race first. Uh, Last year in 2020, 78 people signed up for the site uh, for the race with 44 completing the race. Uh, The man behind it all is none other than slight astronomer who not only has his mod duties but also maintains the website and updates the Google sheets each year with new functionality to make your death race experience as smooth and enjoyable as possible. Please join me in Welcoming Slight Astronomer to the Oscars Death Race podcast. Thanks for having me, Paolo. Of course, of course. Uh, so, you know, Slight Astro. Let's give a little bit of a background uh, on, on kind of your back on your on your on your death races. Uh, when did you get into doing Oscar Death Races?
1: To be honest, I never really liked the Oscars very much. But a friend of mine, she loved loved the Oscars and would stay up, um, you know, obviously I'm based in Britain, Uh, she'd stay up into the early hours uh, to watch the Oscar ceremony. As the kind of years went on, I'd watch a fair number of the films that she was trying to watch, and uh, I'd help her kind of find locations where they were playing, film festivals and things like that. But I suppose I didn't really take part in the death race proper until about 2017. I suppose that was my first proper attempt. I did not do very well at all. <laughs> How hard um, did you get? <laughs> I, I only managed about half of the films. She absolutely thrashed me. I think she missed out on only three in that year. Sadly, she died later that year. So uh, the death race since then, uh, I've, I've kind of done with another one of our friends. And uh it kind of we do it in memory of her as well as you know a kind of competition between the two of us as well
0: wow that's actually a a very sweet story and you know condolences for your friend i know it's been a couple of years but uh, that's awesome that you have this death race to kind of have her like that's your reason for doing the death race like in, in her memory I, I really enjoy that sentiment <laughs> thank you Uh, So how many Death Faces have you completed if your first one wasn't uh, quite a success?
1: So I've come close in 2018. I only missed out on a couple. I think it was uh, All the Money in the World didn't have a British release until or I missed it in its limited cinema release, I think, in in the UK. And then 2019, I'm sure many listeners will uh, share this sentiment that Never Look Away was the one film that I couldn't see that year um so last year was the first year that i actually managed to complete it oh congratulations uh, thank you that's it it was uh and it, the feeling of accomplishment was amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, last year, you know, I it was my first year starting doing the death faces and you know I was fortunate enough, I guess it was a good year, that it was, you know, most of the films were available online in some form or the other that we could actually uh you know get them all. Do you have any fun stories about your death faces? And maybe maybe any films that you went way out of your way to try to see or
1: well, I I very nearly Booked myself a kind of an eight hundred pound trip to Amsterdam just for one day in order to see uh, Never Look Away in in with Dutch subtitles. And incidentally, I don't kind of I don't understand Dutch whatsoever. So, but I, that I think that it came close to booking that trip. <laughs> to be honest, uh, you know I'm based in London, so uh, there's a good number of cinemas, a nice number of festivals here. Obviously, not everything gets uh, uh, released uh, in these parts before the Oscars. But yeah, I don't really have any incredible stories about going miles and miles. Lots of kind of pretending to be places for virtual... Film festivals, should we say?
0: <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I, I'm in New York, so I definitely, you know, we definitely have a little bit of a privilege when it comes to the death race and being able to catch everything against like the major city releases. And what about films that, you know, you, uh, you're you glad you did the death race that you wouldn't have seen otherwise?
1: Um, I think mainly the foreign films, I think they've always kind of stood out a little bit for me. I really enjoyed The Square a few years ago, along with Kapanelm. Uh That was, I think, probably one of my favorite films that year. Last year, I really enjoyed uh, some of the shorts, but particularly the Nefta Football Club, which uh, was very sad it didn't win. But obviously, the the one English language film.
0: I remember that one. Yeah, which yeah. also is like the only happy one though, last year. Also. It,
1: it was in a weird way.
0: Yeah. What about films that you saw re- very regretting or regretfully have seen for the Death Race?
1: I'm sure this won't shock you, but uh, I thought Breakthrough was an absolute uh, horror show of a film.
0: We we have <laughs> I, we, On the show, we have what I call the Breakthrough Rule, which unfortunately means that if a film is nominated for Best, uh, best Original Song only and it's not a great film, you still have to watch it. Um, <laughs> I was so close to just... To the making the rule like okay if, if it's the original song just listen to the song but it was literally the only film I would have had left to complete so it's like might as well just go all the way so
1: absolutely I think you kind of need to put yourself through it sometimes
0: yeah for <laughs> sure well okay so how did you get into moderating the online uh reddit and discord communities um how did that come about
1: well I, I suppose I've been a kind of long-term uh lurker um, when I was trying to help my my friend out and obviously the community is really helpful at identifying places where you can see uh, these films especially if you're outside of the big American cities and then I kind of became a bit more active when I was more active in my participation of the death race. Uh, last year I think was the first year that I shared my uh, the sheet that I've been using with my friend <laughs> uh, uh, which incidentally I'd kind of set up to Show off my Google Sheet skills, I suppose. Uh, uh, they, my friends, had had uh, a previous sheet that they'd used that was very basic, and uh, <laughs> uh, in comparison, I suppose. Uh, so uh, I just wanted to <laughs> just do a bit of showing off. Um-
0: Fair enough. I mean, I mean, I- I- even if you're showing off, it's still like definitely a super helpful. I found in, in, in and at, at the very least, the community element, which I find like the most engaging part, like seeing everyone else who's doing the race.
1: Yeah, that was really fun. Uh, I think uh, last year when uh, when we set that up, uh, it was great. You know, as you said earlier, seventy eight people signed up, and uh, it was it was really nice to see how you related to uh, other people's progression throughout it because um obviously the I've used the sheet to track mine and my friends' uh use and you know it's kind of nice to see what films uh he's enjoyed and you know he can see which films I I think are, are excellent that you know either one of us hadn't seen yet so it's quite nice in that way um but in terms of you know getting onto the mod team um I suppose it was it was kind of the, that work with the sheet uh that you know prompted the the opportunity and uh, I've really enjoyed having a bit more of an active role in the community because it is it's great it's so global this community and everybody's so helpful and yeah it's a, it's a real honor I have to say
0: yeah, definitely a plug. If you haven't, you know, it's, in, it's linked in the show notes. But make sure you guys, you know, check out the subreddit and, and the Discord uh, if this is at all interesting for you guys. Which, if you're listening, hopefully it is. Okay, so so before we get to the the films we're going to be talking about this episode, uh, just kind of your background in film and movies in general. I know you said you didn't like the Oscars so much per se, even though you, you do the Death Race. But what are your favorite kinds of films in general? Maybe of all time or even just the past couple of years. And they don't have to be Oscar specific. I, I suppose,
1: kind of growing up, I was. Uh, uh uh lucky to be exposed to the kind of French new wave uh, quite early on um so that those are kind of very formative films uh kind of hand in hand with those uh, I've got a big fondness for trashy uh Italian horror films of the seventies along with kind of big blockbuster uh, you know uh movies i'm I'm a single parent, and my daughter and I love nothing better. When the cinemas are open of course uh, to go to a uh, a big blockbuster uh, screening we're lucky that there's a few kind of 4dx screens around and uh, the last Godzilla movie was incredible in in that rubbish film but as an experience it with in like a moving chair with smoke coming at you and all all of this stuff it was uh, very enjoyable.
0: Oh man, yeah, I definitely remember. You know, the King of the. Mo- I'm mean, assuming you're talking about King of the Monsters for yes, Godzilla. Yes. Um, I saw that at the uh, Lincoln Center here in, in New York City on like the true IMAX. That's like, like that's like the seventy foot tall screen. That's like the actual IMAX screen, like not the fake nice. IMAX. So um, that's definitely you know a hard agree. And I, I really wish that I could have we could get the chance to see Godzilla v Kong on on the same screen. I think we've had enough kind of prelude setting up. So let's go ahead and dig into our uh, Oscar nominees for this episode. Um, technically again we're not actually actually not nominated yet at the time of recording uh, but these are according to Golderby the films that are most likely to be nominated for best picture um, you know over the over these couple of weeks um, we'll start out and I think the theme for this episode you know if last week we had a uh, black films uh, in that, that are kind of in, in vogue um, you know obviously since you're in the UK I'm here in, in the US um, these are films that we could kind of both have easy access to so a lot of these are films that are available on streaming uh, specifically on Netflix Netflix actually so um Netflix has been making a big push for the Oscars in recent years and we'll talk about more of that in a little bit but um you know we'll, we'll kind of dig into those films we'll start off with I think uh Mank, uh which is I think one of the before you know we got into the season I think was I considered one of the kind of the front runners of uh for the Oscars I don't know about you would you agree absolutely I was really really looking forward to *Mank*. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. So, Mank is a biographical drama about the uh, the screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz, uh, played by Gary Oldman. uh in the development of his screenplay, A lot of Citizens Kane, uh, considered to be one of, if not the greatest film ever made, um, and kind of the co- the inspiration for the screenplay, as well as his interaction with Orson Welles, his co-writer for the screenplay. Uh, this is directed by one David Fincher, uh, based off of a screenplay by his late father, Jack Fincher, um, and this black and white film was released on Netflix on December 4th, 2020. According to Gold Derby, at the time of recording, it is the sixth most likely for Best Picture, second most likely for best director, David Fincher fourth, most likely for best actor, Gary Oldman second, most likely for best supporting actress, Amanda Seyfried fourth for best original screenplay first for best cinematography, second for best costume design third for best editing fourth for best makeup and hairstyling first for best production design second for best score with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross third for best sound and third for best visual design. So that's a lot here. That is a big list. (laughs) <laughs> it is a big list. I think it's, it's well-deserved. I actually saw this one actually last night. Um, I, so confess, on. I had actually never seen Citizen Kane before last night. But I figured if I'm going to watch the bank film, I have to watch Citizen Kane. Kind of like if I'm going to watch Disaster Artist a couple years ago, I have to make sure so I watch The Room to kind of fully understand the context for this. <laughs> what are your thoughts? on? So When did you watch this film, first of all? And, and what were your overall thoughts on it?
1: Um. Yeah, I watched it um, shortly after it got released. I have to admit, I, I'm a big fan of Citizen Kane. I love that kind of, uh, the. I was quite aware of the story around it. You know, I, I studied it to a certain extent uh, in uh, a number of years ago. I had a kind of an understanding of the wider world that Citizen Kane came out of. As a film, I, I kind of enjoyed it. It wasn't really what I'd anticipated it being. I have to admit, in it, it kind of as as time goes on, I feel a little bit let down by it in certain parts. But you know, I think that Gary Oldman and Amanda Seyfried, uh, uh, re, uh put both put in incredible performances.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I definitely will say that, like. I really like, really enjoyed Oldman's performance of Mankiewicz. Kind of, you know, I did a little bit of research, you know, last night as I was watching, you know, both films, kind of to understand it, uh, kind of like my class course. And, you know, the, apparently Mankiewicz was considered like the funniest man in New York at the time. Um, and you could definitely tell that in the way that, that Oldman would just kind of like deliver his snappy one one liners throughout. Um, I really enjoyed that that element of his performance. And as far as Amanda Seyfried, I mean, she definitely lit up and kind of stole the scene in almost whatever. Whatever scenes he was in, which you know, if I'm being frank, like in comparison to the original Citizen Kane, right? She's the inspiration for the uh, second wife of 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 Mr. Kane, um, and you know, in in Citizen Kane, she was a uh, okay. She was there as a figure, but. Uh, completely different uh, characterization of kind of her inspiration through Amanda Seyfried here.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. I think my favorite scenes in the film uh, are those where she's having a cigarette and he's just kind of, I don't know, (laughs) uh, arsing around with her, to be honest.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I think one thing, obviously, seeing these back to back for me, I definitely saw Obviously, there are a lot of parallels, right? Like both of them heavily rely on kind of the structure of, of you know, using a lot of flashbacks to kind of tell what happened. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on the choice to use it black and white? Obviously, that's kind of like the, uh, definitely the direct homage to Citizen mm-hmm. Kane, which kind of was limited by the technology of its time. So what are your thoughts on on that particular use? And especially since it's considered in line for cinematography, which I feel like Hollywood has like a thing for black and white films getting nominated for uh, cinematography.
1: I think you're right there. Uh, um, i I thought it was beautifully shot I thought the black and white uh, aspect was uh, really crisp but also kind of had a dreamy kind of element to it It lent itself very much to uh, the kind of time frame that the film was capturing I feel that it did it really quite, Effectively, uh,
0: and then obviously, you know, we also have you know a lot of the production elements of this as well. You know, like we said, fourth for best makeup, first for production design. Which I'm not quite sure how I feel about the production design nomination. I, I mean, it's definitely a time appropriate piece. And I'm just kind of like, what? Why do you think? Why do you think people are saying that this is this is likely to get production design?
1: I think part of it comes with the uh, the Oscars kind of obsession with that kind of period of time where it was by far and away, the dominant force in in cinema. And I know that Hollywood still is, but obviously not quite to the same extent as it once was. So, yeah, I think that there's always a fondness by the Academy capturing that uh, specific kind of bit of film history.
0: This, this almost feels like a film... Like, when, when you said, like, this film, you know... It, as time goes on, you're a little bit disappointed in it. And, you know, I could see, you know, obviously I'm like fresh off of it and I'm like still kind of like engrossed in that. I could definitely see though, kind of like other Netflix films of of recent years where it's kind of like, do you think that weakness comes from it being in comparison to just the other strong films out this Oscar season? Or is it because it is more a, you know, this is a film that's like a film for filmmakers, about filmmakers, uh, and about that specific time period, about a figure who is a filmmaker and the kind of like that creative process, which Hollywood loves to, you know, talk about, like see the disaster artist again, you know, from a couple of years ago. Um, which which do you think is, is more why people maybe aren't quite as enthused about it? I think it is a kind of combination of those things. You know,
1: I think the disaster artist really caught some of the kind of joy of <laughs> the room. And this film for me, you know, Mank was had quite a kind of cynical take on it I think you know lots of it it seemed that the film was trying to specifically petition about you know Mankiewicz's involvement in the screenwriting process and you know his uh, lack of credit uh, at the time. I left the film and you know thinking back on it now I've learned that certain parts of the film were heavily exaggerated if not uh totally made up as well particularly about the some of the involvement of uh uh Randolph Hearst's uh uh, his kind of involvement in the kind of propaganda type films uh the uh, swayed the 1934 election and things like this. I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there's there's something to be said that you know, well, I looking it up, I think like his fellow director Sully, I think was in the film, was actually like made up. Um, yes, as, as was a made up character that wasn't quite historically accurate. I think the other thing, right, is that I would have really enjoyed seeing a film about Mank digging more into the actual conflict about like is he going to get his Oscar credit or not, It just kind of like cuts. From that argument directly to oh they ended, like they they somehow resolved it and they ended up both getting nomination right yeah it kind of skipped that element of it which I guess part of it is that the there's that there's like the, that there's the story of like how Mank came to write the script about Hearst and Marion and you know how it led to Orson Welles and write about what you know and all that but you know I think the, the pro- maybe it was the expectation of the promise of like that conflict would be the central piece which wasn't really quite the case.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, absolutely,
0: I think I think part of it is that this was based on a screenplay from again David Fincher's father, Jack Fincher, who I think had wrote, written it all the way back in like the nineties, right? Like David, like Fincher the younger was trying to get this direct produced after his film The Game. Back in the '90s, which you know definitely is like uh, uh, many, many years in the making, and so I think you know, the, I think since then there has been more things come to light about just the true nature of the the, conf- the so-called conflict between Wells and and Mankiewicz, which maybe at the time was like a little bit more, you know, had one particular perspective, but now it's not not quite as much, and so maybe that's why it felt like a little bit out of place with everything we know contextually now.
1: Yeah, agreed. Agreed.
0: Um, so speaking of Fincher, how does this fit? You know, he's he's second up. He's up for second place for for best director. If and you know, if Nomadland ends up you know not getting it, he would be the one kind of the to take place. How do you think this this fits in for Fincher um, among his filmography and and his general job and how good a job he did at directing all this?
1: I think you know, obviously the performances are spectacular, and the director obviously coaxes that out of the actors. Although you know both. Of the the leads, or you know, the supporting actress in Amanda Seyfried's uh, case, uh, are both very good to start off with. In terms of where it fits in with Fincher, obviously there's some parallels uh, to the kind of power, power and influence of the media that sometimes crops up in his films. I'm thinking kind of Zodiac, uh, and you know the kind of identity type thing of. Uh, Uh, Of some of the other films,
0: yeah. Also, just also just about like being like a writer in general, almost like a mastermind, and kind of like how the passage of time, you know, influences somebody over time. You know, that's that's those are all definitely hallmarks of of his work. Um, How do you how do you think this ranks against his other films? If you had to like rank it,
1: I think as as I say, it's the longer I get away from seeing it, the. Harder it is for me to actually identify things that really stood out for me, other other than the performances and some of this kind of cinematography. In in that respect, maybe it's because I've seen a fair few films since, uh, but I I wasn't that keen to revisit it. And maybe I will at some point. I don't know if that answers your question,
0: I, I think uh, I think it does, but yeah, it's definitely a good film executed wise. It just doesn't has the same sticking power as maybe his social networks or Zodiacs or even sevens
1: yeah, i th- I think uh, I think that sums it up nicely. how, how do you feel about it as well? Uh, coming at it fresh?
0: yeah, it's it's super fresh, and i I think I kind of get the same sentiment. I mean, um, there's just something about those three films which I kind of mentioned that just feel. Like he's completely like he was completely in his element. Um, where it's it's everything like, you know, Fincher tends to have a, a thing about like talking about like kind of almost the the depravity of humanity in in his best films, right? Also Gone Girl is kind of like up there as well. Yes. Or girl with a dragon tattoo, even. Um this one didn't quite have that as much. I mean, there's definitely some stuff about like how, you know, Hearst and kind of the other Hollywood the Hollywood machine is kind of uh as kind of like can be kind of rotten to some degree um but not too much just because like he's still definitely in love with Hollywood and and the film industry so that, that kind of tempers that a little bit so it's not him at his most Finchery yes but you can definitely tell like the snappy editing snappy dialogue and and all that that all just screams Fincher to me as well so Um, Speaking of, though, I think this is a good place to transition. Uh, We did mention Social Network. There is uh, another Social Network alum uh, in consideration, and we'll talk about his film, Aaron Sorkin. Um, So uh, Aaron Sorkin directed and co-wrote the next film. We're talking about The Trial of Chicago 7, a historical legal drama Uh, following the titular Chicago 7, a group of anti-Vietnam War protesters charged with conspiracy to incite riots at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Um, A large ensemble cast involved includes Sacha Baron Cohen, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Michael Keaton, Eddie Redmayne, Mark Rylance, among many others. Uh, This was sold by Paramount to Netflix to be released on October 16th, 2020, just before the U.S. elections. Uh, It is currently uh, in second place for Best Picture, third for best director for uh second for best actor with such a baron cohen as well as sixth for uh mark rylance uh first for best original screenplay first for best editing and fifth for best original song hear my voice uh so yeah i think it's really interesting for me at least to see both fincher and sorkin you know two social this two social network kind of like genius behind, minds behind that uh competing against each other for best director in second and third place here uh with their respective films what do you make of that
1: yeah that is interesting um, w- w- i'm curious when uh have you watched this recently
0: yeah so I'll, I'll, I'll say i watched all of these films like within the past week basically um but yeah when, when did you end up watching a uh, trial chicago 7
1: I, I have to admit i re-watched this this week um but i originally watched it again shortly after it came out back in october
0: Uh, What did you make of it then, especially, you know, I I, I know this is definitely a lot leading... Heavily into the U.S. politics. I know, like Paramount specifically sold this to Netflix because uh, there was a I on the box office subreddit. There was a there was an article about like people most likely to go to theaters in the states weren't the people most likely to want to see a trial of Chicago Seven, uh, <laughs> which is why they sold it to Netflix to get it out before the election because it's kind of timely, right? Talking about a lot of the themes in there. What did you make of it coming from the UK?
1: I think you know uh, it really kind of did capture some of that kind of zeitgeist that was especially happening towards the end of last year about you know police brutality and uh you know the power of individual voices to make or to enact change
0: yeah uh what and then and then since then obviously as opposed to mank you wanted to revisit this what made you want to like revisit this as opposed to for, for this podcast
1: i think it is it's a simpler film it's an easier film to digest as well and i think you know that's not to not in its detriment i think it, it succeeds very well it getting across uh, some complicated things uh, in an entertaining and informative way. I think it starts excellently, you know, the way it introduces the main characters, and jumps between them, you know, those kind of uh, amusing con- continuation uh, cuts as it goes between uh, their, what, what they're saying, what their speeches are.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is definitely up for, again, this is up for best editing, which I think goes hand in hand with the screenplay that that Aaron Sorkin wrote, um, which, of course, you know, Aaron Sorkin, again, wrote The Social Network, but he's also had a lot of other great, you know, uh, and this is kind of like his world of like, you know, Social Network is another legal proceeding type film, right? Um, Moneyball, the Steve Jobs, Molly's Game, West Wing, um, all of these kind of like walk and talk and like these these, these heavy dialogue, heavily and tightly timed dialogue as well so it has like that rhythm to it uh which matches kind of like the editing element of it as well yeah and then what about what do you think of the performances it's obviously like a, a amazing ensemble cast and not everyone can get nominated so what do you think of just the cast in general here
1: yeah as you say it's an incredible ensemble um i think you know they all stand out uh, i really like uh, joseph gordon levitt's uh kind of uh the way he plays that almost bad guy uh role one of the bad guys anyhow a well very
0: uh, likeable bad guy to be this
1: to be is honest. it absolutely but a kind of really human uh bad guy you know who asks the questions and you know he stands up at the end uh, yeah the, the ensemble in its entirety is is pretty spectacular
0: yeah i'll say i'll say my standout was definitely mark rylance's character um of 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 the uh, of the of the lawyer who just the way that he he delivers, I, I I'm not quite I could not put my finger on what exactly about my, Mark Rylance's ke- uh, performance really captured me, but there's something about like his his very disheveled look where like he he you can tell he's a he's a great lawyer because he doesn't care about how like how <laughs> frumpy he kind of looks, but then he can tell like the moments when he cracks and just gets so frustrated and of, of course in contempt of court. Which by the way, that judge who uh, the, I forget the actor who portrayed the judge just did an amazing job at selling him as just like this complete douche basically like we uh, absolutely wanted this, this
1: he's awful isn't he
0: <laughs> which, which you know i think i think satcha baron cohen uh, as he's he's second up for for best actor um again his comedic time in between this and the borat film uh this year was was was, was is spectacular i think as well
1: Yeah, obviously, coming from uh, the UK, you know we we have a big claim on Sasha, (laughs) Um, and you know I I think his his role for me is one of the standouts in this film. I can see why he's higher placed.
0: Now, I find this interesting that. You know, last week I talked about the five bloods with my friend Ed and kind of like how that kind of touched not on the Vietnam War itself, but kind of the impact of the Vietnam War. And we kind of see that in this film also, right, where it's using the Vietnam War film and the sentiment of like kind of the impact of that film, um, you know, in to frame kind of like the conversation here right it was, it was kind of like the impetus for the for the protests in in chicago uh similarly this film is also portraying uh fred hampton the president of the illinois chapter of the black panther um which you know I think, like not last weekend, but the weekend before, do this in the Black Messiah was also a film about Fred Hampton, which I still haven't seen yet, unfortunately, so I can't comment more on that. But it's—I I find it really interesting that the Zeitgeist seems to hone in on these specific historical figures and times. What do you make of that? The fact that that, that it seems that all of these films are, are, are coalescing around that time period for for th- this year's Oscars.
1: Yeah, I suppose um, you know the seventies and the Vietnam War. Is really the last kind of proper point where citizens have protested. I think in in the US, and I, you know I could be wrong, obviously, um, but certainly from my understanding uh, based in in the UK. It's, it's always good uh, to
0: have an outside perspective. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, it feels that you know there's been uh, there's another big kind of groundswell of of opinion in um, and making opinions heard in. In positive ways, I
0: suppose. Definitely. And, you know, I, I definitely have seen some pushback against Trial of Chicago Seven, people saying it's like not that great. What do you, what are your thoughts on that in general? I, I definitely think it definitely, at the very least, I think it deserves the screenplay uh, and probably the editing nominations at the very least, if not, you know, the others. Um, what what do you think, like, the, the, the sentiment that it's not quite as good? And like, what are your thoughts? Just are anything else about the film before we kind of wrap up talking about Chicago Seven?
1: I, I did enjoy it as a, as a film and I enjoyed re watching it as well, um, which is always a good kind of lit- it must test um I can understand to some extent I don't think it is the best film of the year by any stretch of the imagination certainly in my opinion a better <laughs> kind of green book type uh, film where you know your parents can watch it and you know enjoy it <laughs> uh, and you know my daughter enjoyed it as well so it's that kind of it's got that wide reach I suppose um, where... I suppose certainly people of a certain political <laughs> persuasion might enjoy it more than others, perhaps. But uh,
0: it's definitely, I, I get that broad appeal part where it's like, um, this one can kind of like anyone in the moment can speak to it, where it's like mank, you, it's, it's definitely like a more insider film, right? Where it's like you have to be in on like the Hollywood stuff to really get it and understand and appreciate what it's doing and the references it's making.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, particularly second time round, uh, I noticed in Chicago 7 how uh, little exposition there is, uh, you know, unnecessary exposition. Um, the script is is very tight at kind of getting the audience to go along
0: for sure for sure um so you know again these two films came out on netflix and we'll do a little bit a brief interlude here where you know netflix has definitely made a push in the past couple of years to try to you know Win an Oscar, and specifically a Best Picture Oscar, right? So we'll go like going into like a little bit of the history of Netflix and the Oscars. Uh, In 2018, they got their first non-documentary because they always get the documentary nominations. First non-documentary nomination for Best Supporting Actress, uh, adapted screenplay, cinematography, and original song from *Mudbound* and a foreign language film on *Body and Soul*. Um, and then in 2019, their first series contender in the Oscars, I think, it was Roma, um, which actually won Best Director, Best Foreign Language Film, and Best Cinematography, and was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actress, Supporting Actress, Sound Production, uh, and as well as nominations for Ballad of Buster Scruggs in adapted screenplay, song, and costume design. Um, and then in 2020, you know, I know, I, I know there's also there was also the news that I forget her name exactly, but the Oscar whisperer from a 24 was kind of poached by Netflix to kind of help their Oscar campaign, which really showed uh, in 2020, especially um, when Irishman merit story got nominated for best picture and way many other categories. I'm not going to list out here um, as well as a couple of nods to uh, two popes, as well as animated films. I lost my body and Klaus. Uh, So, you know, if I'm not mistaken, actually they had the most nominations of any studio last year, uh, with 24 total nominations ahead of Disney and 20th Century Fox's 23 and Sony's 20. So obviously this year, we don't have final numbers yet, but on top of the two films we just talked about here, they also have Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and The Five Bloods up for contention. And again, who knows what other documentaries and foreign language films that might be on Netflix that end up getting nominated. So first off, what do you think is Netflix's chances this year to actually finally get their best picture winner? Which I I know in a later episode, we'll talk about Nomad Land and how they're kind of like the front runner for Best Picture. But between the four films they have up there, what do you think the chances to, how how good of a shot do you think they have?
1: I have to admit, I've been saving Nomad Land uh, for later in the race, you know, that kind of dip where I need, need a good film to kind of re reinvigorate me
0: fair enough but maybe in comparison like what the films you've seen thus far versus the netflix films from last year like are they stronger than last year do you think they have a better shot
1: i i think that they're up against it again this year i think roma was realistically their best shot at at it because i think although you know i really like the chicago seven i don't think that it is the best film of the year and i don't think it will Get the the Best Picture nom uh, or, or, or Oscar. The Five Bloods for me probably stands out of the uh, the other ones. Ma Rainey was a bit too theatrical for my my tastes, uh, but you know, excellent performances. But the Five Bloods, as you kind of mentioned last week, I think it was it's a strong film, and I think of of the kind of three main ones for for Best Picture for Netflix. It's probably their. Biggest shot, although it's again the time frame, the distance between release and the Oscars probably doesn't go in its favor.
0: Yeah, I mean, aside from Best Picture, you know, they also like again, um, it's it's slightly sifted actually, but you know, Viola Davis is definitely up there uh, for Best Actress. I think carrie Mulligan just just recently took first place actually, which we'll talk about in a little bit um, on Gold Derby. Chadwick Boseman is definitely head and shoulders, like, in the lead for Best Actor um, for Ma Rainey. Um, for Chicago 7, Best for in First Place for Original for original Screenplay. And they also, Mank, for its various technical awards, right? Cinematography and editing. Um, so I think, at, at the very least, Netflix, I think will have a stronger showing this year than maybe they did last year with, like, Marriage Story and, and The Irishman and, and, and uh, The Two Popes.
1: I think uh, you know. I think they must have been quite disappointed with the performance of the Irishman last year.
0: Yeah. So you know, given the and one other question, right? So given the sift that this pandemic has had in the way that we consume films, right? Obviously, we can't go to theaters as we alluded to earlier. Everything's now predominantly streaming. Do you? Th- there's been an anti Netflix bias I've, I've seen at the Oscars, right? People want the films to be in theaters, and obviously, that's not a reality at this point. Do you think that sifts the calculus here, where? because everything's streaming now maybe Netflix doesn't quite have that much bias that the Academy might have had against them in, in prior years
1: oh I think that that's an excellent question um I think I think it certainly reduces that uh, and I this year I think it plays in other people's favor more so than Netflix I I think that one night in Miami probably stands a better chance than any of the Netflix films uh, this year just my total amateur (laughs) impression. So, you know, obviously that coming out of Amazon would share some of those kind of anti-streaming things
0: Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, and so speaking of, right, like another film that actually had a theatrical release, so Universal, if, if you follow my other box office podcast, made so struck a deal with AMC, Cinemark, and Cineplex uh, to you know have the films come out on theatrical, but then have a limited v- uh, VOD release uh, within 17 days, uh, which crushed the theatrical window down. And one of these under their label focus features was Promising Young Woman, um, which is a black comedy written and produced and directed, uh, so triple crown by Emerald Fennell uh, in her directorial debut, uh, Carrie Mulligan tells the story is is the lead and tells it tells the story of a former med school student who seeks to offend uh, the wrongdoings done to her best friend uh, back in med School. Um, this premiered over a year ago actually at Sundance 2020, um, but was released again by Universal and Focus Features on Christmas Day before now coming to uh, VOD. Um, it is currently seventh on Gold Derby for Best Picture, sixth uh, for Best Director, Emerald Fennel, uh, First, again, as I noted, uh, Best Actress, Carrie Mulligan, and second in Original Screenplay. Uh, so this one kind of feels like, it, it's a little bit of a surprise in that I don't think at the beginning of the year, you know, like maybe like a year ago, if you would have said these are the films coming out this year, barring again, we didn't know the pandemic was going to happen. But um, if you saw like all the films that were planned to come out in this coming year, I don't think "Promising Young Woman" would have been on people's radar as as a strong Oscar contender. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that absolutely. I think it is a, a bit of a surprise, but a, a very pleasant surprise for my, in my opinion
0: yeah for sure i mean it definitely feels almost like knives out in a way where it like it started off with like almost broader support it didn't really the support doesn't really feel like it's coming from the oscar community the like the film film twitter film snob community as much um more like i see a lot of like my friends who aren't oscar watchers like watching this and really enjoying it and i i feel that that's kind of like transition to you know a lot of the more film critics like starting to talk this up a little bit more
1: yeah absolutely um I think, uh, you know, because it kind of, it takes a uh, a fairly well-known kind of uh, <laughs> revenge type plot, uh, but twists it in a, it feels quite a modern way. I think that lends itself to kind of discussion amongst people as well. And certainly it's, it's the film that I've spoken on Zoom with my friends most about over the last cut kind of couple of months.
0: Okay, I'm curious then So what are your thoughts on on it in general? Like what are the things that, that 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 bring you back and make you say it's a pleasant surprise?
1: It's a smart film. I think it's a um, some of the transitions are really interesting and clever. Obviously I've, I've mentioned that I' have a bit of a fondness for kind of Italian horror films and uh, horror in general, which is obviously normally frowned upon by uh, the Academy. And I'm well aware that this isn't a horror film, but it's it's certainly on the darker side of uh, normal Oscar fare. I would say.
0: Wait, well, if if most Oscars are like sad, this one is almost like almost like seething anger, almost right? Or like that—that's a different—it's a different emotion that you get from from different from the Oscar films in general. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so obviously, you know, I think the standout here is definitely uh, Carrie Mulligan's performance uh, in as the lead. Uh, what did you make of her performance? Anything in particular to that to you?
1: Oh, um, th- she's she's fantastic. Uh, I can't think of an exact reason why, but uh, you know, I, it, one thing I can mention is the screenplay uh, as a kind of point of of discussion. As I say, that I've had with. Uh, with my friends uh, and you know I'm aware that it is a fairly polarizing ending there there has been a lot of discussion about whether it's it's right that a a, a female a strong female character should have to die in order to get justice i you know I, I absolutely share that sentiment it shouldn't have to be that way but in terms of the film world i i feel that it was a really powerful ending for me uh there's quite a large part of me that i to say that I'm glad that it doesn't, doesn't have a, a super happy ending is, is absolutely wrong. You know, I, I wish that they'd all lived happily ever after. Yeah, but, but
0: real life, real life, real life isn't happily ever after. Unfortunately, this right? is
1: it, absolutely in terms of a film. Uh, I think it was, a uh, an interesting ending, uh, an interesting way to get, get everybody to have their comeuppance, uh, in a kind of slightly surprising, interesting way.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, I think the, I think the, the like, the screenplay to, to that point, right? Like, it does a really good job of, like, obviously, this is, like, this is a commentary on rape culture and, like, kind of like the, and like kind of like the response against the Me Too movement, right? Um, and, and I think it did a really good job of explaining how and the, the how and the why of the mindset of people who perpetuate like rape culture and that kind of mentality um, that allows these kind of things to happen. Um, and, you know, Carrie Mulligan's character almost acts as like an angel of death, almost kind of like, so again, like you said, sewing the comeuppance, but then how different characters react to what happened, right? Like for, uh, the one that stands out to me is like after the character of Al uh, kills her, right. Um, and his friend comes up the next morning and like, basically tells him this is not your fault you like this is all okay or whatever right um or like bo burnham's character where like when she confronts him and then like he kind of pivots almost and his mentality toward her you can see it sift in real time on the screen it did it, both the acting and the screenplay did a really good job of explaining how the mentality that society has created allows for this kind of like double standard
1: yeah i think that's really interesting um one thing for me as well, uh that is she's obviously totally broken by this uh event that, that's happened to her friend. And uh I think the, the screenplay does a really good job at uh, demonstrating that the only other person who had properly negative effects of this uh was uh the the lawyer that she kind of uh, uh, she goes in order to um try and ruin his life again I suppose um, but ends up not doing that and providing him some sort of pivotal role in that kind of unlocking of the ending because the kind of the threat of death is is there from the kind of very first scene where you know she's taken out of this bar and then there's that lovely transition to the ketchup dripping on her shirt or or, you know uh, costume and then you realise oh she hasn't actually killed him It's those parallels that I think... Make the ending stronger as a film.
0: Right. And, you know, I, I think to this point, again, we have to give credit to Emerald Fennell, who, again, this is her directorial debut. She so wrote it and produced it as well. She so is on the outside of like who's likely going to be nominated for best director, but I think she did some really interesting choices in both thought composition and just kind of like how she got the actor. I think, you know, there were some very interesting thoughts, especially in the coffee shop, I think, um yes. where, where Carrie Mulligan's head was like framed in like uh, an art piece on the wall where it looked like a halo. And just like some specific things of like how like the fur like see how they see directed thoughts of Carrie Mulligan interacting with like furniture to seem and the, the way she interacted in her parents' house just felt very fresh and different compared to different directors we've seen.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think you know there's a certain element of that kind of production design in a uh, very specific way, alluding to kind of the way that the character's feeling. But in a in an interesting, slightly more subtle way than other people perhaps have done it.
0: We kind of alluded to this earlier, but you know, obviously Netflix again. You know, these are all streams available currently on streaming, for at least in the states here. It sounds like also in the UK, so they're easier to access. So, how do you think the impact of COVID will be have on the vase? So, obviously, a lot of these films, you know, you're able to see films now that maybe promising woman woman wouldn't have come out on. Uh, between the delay of the Oscars and also it being available on streaming within a couple of days or on day and date release, now you can you have access online to these films. So a lot of films are now more easily accessible. How will that affect the death age? Do you think more people will be able to complete the race or do you think it'll be on the flip side and some films that would have gotten the release are now not going to be able to i'm thinking of sorts and and and, and international films specifically
1: i think that there's been a (laughs) been a a long time issue with uh you know international distribution anyhow of films i've never really quite understood why distributors hold films back uh when they've got an oscar nomination um obviously be you know i consider the uk quite a, a big film market and i know that It isn't in terms of the numbers against America and whatnot. But um, it does seem to be a frustrating choice by some distributors to hold films back and not take advantage of those opportunities, I suppose, that a nomination provides. That said, I think that this year, it is going to be potentially easier than ever before to complete the race. Uh, Online or hybrid festivals have really added to that you know, because there hasn't been any other choice. And whether that will continue, you know, into future years, I'm quite hopeful that there is more kind of hybrid approaches to to things. But that said, I do truly miss the cinema and uh, want to get back in the cinema as soon as possible. And I'm a little bit worried about uh, whether or not we will see as wide a range of interesting films possibly uh going forward or whether uh distribution and streaming takes away some of that kind of fine I don't know we'll see <laughs> we'll see what happens
0: so I mean like I definitely I think on Monday at the time of recording this you know, it will be by the time this episode goes up it'll have happened already I think the father is having like a film screening that somebody's shared online that would all, mm-hmm. all- and the cats um but yeah i definitely you know definitely more accessible for some films but then some others will be a little bit harder but it sounds like on net it will probably be you know if this if you want if you want to try to get your friends into watching the oscar's death race and try to watch all the films i think this is the year to do it just because of how the accessible things will be
1: yeah agreed uh, you know obviously the the screening on on monday of the father i think is three o'clock in the in the morning uk time oh, no. um so not ideal for me but uh <laughs> um, there there's uh, a couple of other screenings that night or next week as well um, that are long-listed in some of the shorts.
0: Yeah, uh, and then, you know, any predictions for the Oscars or uh, any other predictions for the Oscars or Oscar death rates in general uh, for this year in specific, any particular bottlenecks? Um, you, you kind of do to international and, and sorts.
1: Yeah, they're normally the harder ones to get hold of um, or to, to, you know, uh, especially... Uh, in in this country, I'm hopeful that we'll get to see them all. Obviously, in terms of predictions, I've every year I normally put a few pounds on uh, a few different films, and this year, after I saw One Night in Miami, I immediately put a pound on <laughs> on it for winning Best Picture. I don't really know why. I think it, it is an excellent film, but it also um jumped out at me as being perhaps uh something that might take the academy especially in the preferential vote option um i think it might do better than anticipated but again i have no hard evidence for that other than
0: (laughs) fair enough I, i i feel the same way about minari on my end so you know
1: oh i haven't seen that yet either so it's i'm looking forward to that
0: tell let me know what you think about it whenever whenever that happens. Um, and then you know outside of the Oscars any obviously you know while still at home for now hopefully by like when vaccines a lot we can get back to theaters any upcoming films in 2021 be they Oscar or not Oscar related that that are excited that you're excited for?
1: Well, uh, I mentioned uh, Godzilla versus Kong earlier. Um, <laughs> um, I'm definitely looking forward to that if if we can see it in the cinema, and fingers crossed on that one. Um, I'm also looking forward to Last Night in Soho, the new Edgar Wright uh, movie that got pushed back to next year, uh, to this coming year, um, but also June, and uh, I suppose uh, the the new Bond film. These are all very standard, I I know.
0: Uh, (laughs) Hey, hey, you like what you like. So um, in any case, I think we're at the end of this. So obviously, you know, anything you want to plug, hint, hint the Oscar Death Race tracking scenes. Where can people find your work uh, if they want to participate in the Oscar Death Race community?
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah, obviously um the Google Sheet that I use with my friend uh is welcome. I'm very happy for other people to use that as well. Um you can get it from the uh Death Race Tracking subreddit. I believe you're gonna put a link in the show notes. Yep, yep. yep. So yeah, it'd be lovely to see the community side of that be used by as many people as possible. There are obviously other ways that you can compete in the death race. And just a shout out to some uh, other tracking things that people have done. There's a web-based site, uh, oscarsdeathrace.com, uh, which uh, has a very similar thing, but it doesn't use a Google Sheet. They've just put in a community kind of competition. I'd like to say that my sheet uh, provides many, many more statistics.
0: Any features you want to you want to shout out? Any, anything you're excited for in, in the seats? year well and um,
1: this year i'm uh, going to attempt to do uh because I've, I've signed up to the independent spirits as well i'm also going to try and do the whole bafta uh nominations as well so um this one sheet tracks all of that and helps me identify which film i want to watch in an evening
0: definitely definitely de- the next few months are definitely going to be or next few weeks are definitely going to be a lot of you know planning out your evenings around uh, what films you still need to watch
1: this is it absolutely i think uh I have uh, added a little, since since I released this, this sheet, I've added on a little add-on just for me at the moment, but, uh, where I set a time that I want to go to bed, and it tells me which films would uh, best suit that time frame as well, just
0: That is amazing. Um, well... In any case, uh, thank you again, Astro, for hopping on and joining us on the podcast. Thank you again for all your work with the seats and the community. I know it's not not easy, but uh, we're glad to have it. Uh, Best of luck to you. May we both be able to complete our second uh, Oscar death race this year.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, and good luck with the race. All
0: right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's all go to the lobby.
1: Let's all go to the lobby, let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.
0: Many thanks again to Slight Astronomer for coming onto the podcast. Again, I really appreciate all the work he does to support the community and the seats and the site that he maintains. I frankly wouldn't be podcasting still if he and the rest of the mod team on the subreddit weren't receptive to me posting my episodes this time last year. It's a super great community. I strongly recommend you check it out if you like this sort of thing. If you want to check out his seats, visit the Death death Race tracking subreddit or his community site, oscarsdeathrace.netlify.app. Links to all of that in the show notes. Uh, That wraps up this episode of the Oscars Death Race Podcast. Let me know how your death race is going uh, on Twitter at Oscars Cast or via email at Oscars Podcast at zmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your podcast service of choice, uh, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or if you can leave a review of there or on Podchaser.com or even just share it with a friend who enjoys movies, any of that would be super helpful. If you want to directly financially contribute to the show, you can do so on Patreon linked in the show notes. Also linked there will be my Letterboxd account, under the username Ninjaboy, boy Boy with an I, and be sure to check out, again, the Oscar Race and Oscars Death Race subreddits, and the Oscars Death Race Discord, as well as the community website. Uh, Music is provided by Kevin MacLeod. Find his stuff at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing and production is provided by Ninjaboy Media. That's it for this week. This has been Paulo of the Oscars Death Race podcast. Until next time, I'll be here trying to watch all the Oscar nominees, or die trying. (laughs)